Hello, and welcome to At Home in Muskoka, a podcast by the Muskoka Community Land Trust. I'm your host, Sandy Martin. In today's episode, we're joined by Jeremy Ram, the Manager of Planning for the Town of Perry Sound. He's worked as an urban planner all over Muskoka and is a proud Gravenhurst resident who lives just down the street from me with his young son, Atlas. When he's not thinking or talking about urban planning, Jeremy is a rower with the Georgian Bay Rowing Club, volunteering his time organizing the Muskoka Fall Classic Rowing Regatta. He's also a founder and organizer of the Ignite Gravenhurst Speaker Series, which takes place annually as part of the Gravenhurst Winter Carnival. You can donate to the Muskoka Community Land Trust by supporting the show on Patreon or on our website, muskokaclt.org, which is also where you'll find today's show notes. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Jeremy. I am really, really interested to hear about, I mean, all sorts of things, of course, but in particular, I'm interested to hear about um, what you do as a town planner. Uh, But why don't we start with, you know, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you came to be a a member of the community in Gravenhurst. Sure. Um, My parents are from the area. I lived in Gravenhurst until I was about seven. Um, And then we moved down to the city. So it's sort of a common story you hear. Um, I moved back up after my undergrad and uh, I was actually offered a job at the town of Gravenhurst. At the time, I really thought I'd only be here for a year or two, but at this point, I can't imagine living anywhere else. It's just such a great place to be. Um, I have a son now and, you know, we take advantage of a lot of, you know, what's great about the community, the parks and the recreational opportunities, especially. So, yeah, that's home. (laughs) Yeah. So did you come to Gravenhurst because of the job from the town of Gravenhurst? Or was it like, oh, I remember being there when I was a kid and I really want to go back? Um, A bit of both. I had family up here and that was the primary driver. I called my mom and said, I was offered this job at Gravenhurst. I don't know. And then she, you know, before I even said, I don't know if I want to take it or not. She said, I'm already on my way. I'm going to come get you. Because at that time I just finished school. I didn't have a car. (laughs) She basically said, you're taking this job. Um, And I did and no regrets. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. So now I want to know, what is a town planner or an urban planner, I guess? Maybe you could tell me the right terminology. Um, so urban planner, I guess, is the terminology. There's so many different uh, words for it. But um, it can be summed up, I guess, as processing land use and uh, managing land use um, within a municipality. So things like development law, development policy, um, there could be programs related to development, uh, making recommendations to council on development. Um, there's a little bit of advocating. We try not to. We try to stay fairly uh, neutral uh, with our planning opinions, but uh, we do provide that expertise to council. So any land within the boundaries of the municipality is subject to the town plan. Is that fair to say, or have I gotten too specific about that? No, that's fair. So there's a couple things that, you know, apply to all land within a municipality. So in Ontario, we have things called official plans and that official plan sets out like the broad policy basis for development um, and and direction for development. And every every property within the town will have a designation associated with it. And there's also different layers for, um, like environmental protection and those kind of things. Now, the official plan is policy. It's not specifically law. So the way that official plans are implemented is through zoning bylaws. So that actually creates 
uh, applicable law, which can um, direct building permits and how they, how or when they issue building permits. For example, you know, in, a, in an R1 residential, you, you can't get a building permit for like a, a grocery store, a terrible example, but yeah. um, because the applicable law does not allow it. Okay. But so, so the, okay. I think I see the connection now. So if somebody, I'm going to go right to housing, because of course that's one of the things that I'm very interested in. I think you are as well. How do you see your everyday job and the, the crisis of affordability and housing that we see all around us? Do you see a direct connection or is it one of those things where like, yeah, they're adjacent to each other, but I don't, I don't totally see a direct connection between the two. Yeah. So I guess I'd start off by saying there's, you know, a lot of internal and external factors that affect housing affordability. And some of those are outside of the municipality's control. Um, but there are incremental things that can really make a difference at a local scale. Um, and part of that is flexibility in existing zoning. Um, and with that, I mean, there are some municipalities that are so prescriptive in their uh, applicable law that a lot of activities are prohibited without a planning process. So this would force residents to get zoning amendments or minor variances that would otherwise be sort of rubber stamped anyways. And, and these can be huge roadblocks for things like additional housing, um, especially for locals who want to invest in their communities. So on the, on the other side, we know that typically large developments are going to likely require zoning amendment or site plan agreement applications. Um, but if we look at, you know, someone who wants to build something on a smaller scale, like a walk up or something with incremental uh, density, um, putting a six month delay to get approvals can really put a project in danger of not even being feasible right off the start. So well, yeah, and speaking from our end, you know, the longer the delay, and none of this is going to be news, but the longer the delay, the harder it is to plan for and mm -hmm. and you know adjust for rising construction costs and, and financing and all of those things. So the longer it is, the worse it is, right? Sure, especially in an inflationary environment where mm -hmm. you know those uh, construction costs can be very unpredictable. Um, and I think planning at the end of the day is really about balancing, um, ensuring that, you know, review of projects is important, but also allowing enough flexibility or right, uh, as of right permissions for people to be able to move ahead with their projects in a timely manner is important. It's, it, it can be a tough balancing act and some of it can be political too, where, you know, council wants to have a say in, in, in development. Um, Bill 23, which received Royal Assent from the province last year, um, now allows for accessory and ancillary dwelling units as of right for most service lots in Ontario across the whole province. And this was really done to ensure that these incremental additional units can be done in existing neighborhoods without unnecessary roadblocks. So unfortunately, we had a lot of municipalities that you know, they would require that minor variance because maybe your house is too close to the lot line. Technically, it's at a 1.4 meter setback instead of 1.5 meter setback. Then you needed a minor variance before you can put in that um, dwelling unit, for example. So those types of roadblocks have been, um, you know, there, there's efforts to reduce those by the province, which is good. I mean, say what you want about Bill 23. It's a fairly large bill, but I really like that aspect of it and forcing municipalities to allow that flexibility, um, especially in older neighborhoods. Municipalities are in a tough spot because they have certain tools that they have to use. Um, and it's a pretty limited toolbox to an extent. Like zoning bylaws inherently have to draw the line somewhere, and that may be a setback. 
So if you are 1.4 meters instead of 1.5 meters, you do not meet the applicable law and that's just the nature of it. Now there are tools, um, things like minor variances that allow for exemptions or a variance from um, those, those specific uh, laws. But um, again, it's inherent to the tools that are available to the municipality. Okay. And so let me make sure I understand this then. You, so now because of kind of a provincial action through Bill 23, municipalities yeah. in general have to allow for, see, this is so layperson that I actually am stumbling over okay. my words. They have to allow for more than just a single family home, let's say in their zoning that typically in the past would have only allowed for a single family home. Am I way off base here? Help no, me that's, that's <laughs> it in plain language. That's essentially it. Um, we, we've seen municipalities in the province, not all municipalities, some are um, more uh, generous than others and more liberal than others in that respect. Um, but you know, where they're putting up roadblocks, maybe inadvertently or on purpose, where you know they allow for a second or third dwelling unit but only in very certain circumstances and that can be enough to slow down additional development um, there's a lot of examples out west uh, city of edmonton for example is looking at city of edmonton and city of vancouver are both updating their zoning right now and i think vancouver was looking at six units per property um, edmonton is looking at like depending where you are, three to three to six units per um, per, per residential lot, um, depending on where you are in the municipality. So though it's the hope that those types of, it's not forcing people to build these units, but it's giving them the opportunity to, or the flexibility just inherent in the existing applicable law to allow those incremental units to happen. Because um, when you look at infill, which is really just redevelopment or you know, increasing development within an area. Um, if it's an existing neighborhood, the services are there, the sidewalks there, there's a park nearby. And, and that's just really the most effective um, type of development you can have. It's, it's cost efficient. It, it just makes sense for the community. It creates a lot of opportunity by doing that. And you can put in an additional unit in a house, or the thought is you can put an additional unit in a house or a second unit in a, like above a garage and you're allowing for more units, but you're not really changing the face of the neighborhood. You don't have to redevelop an entire block. Um, it can happen within people's existing dwellings and that allows for um, you know, flexibility. For example, if I'm a new property owner and I'm having trouble with raising interest rates, I can put a basement apartment in and that's going to help offset my cost uh, for that house. Can I ask you, and again, generally speaking, I'm not asking you to spill the tea or anything, but what are the challenges that you see kind of in with one foot as a community member and one foot in kind of planning department? How, how, where do you see these challenges? So I, th I think environmental concerns are always like, um, it's a challenge here because, you know, when you look at what drives the economy, tourism's really the, you know, raison d'etre for Muskoka. And it's really tough to balance because when you look at the cottage industry or where the demand is, um, that tourism really thrives next to nature, next to waterways, and they're really environmentally sensitive. Um, when you look at any official plan in Muskoka, there's this huge emphasis on environmental protection. You know, that can take many forms, but we're also trying to balance that with the 
economic interest um, that benefits the community overall as well. So I think the term balancing comes up in planning a lot mm-hmm. and it's really balancing those interests. So sometimes you're balancing, um, you know, the interests of the tourism industry with the, uh, with, with maybe what locals will want to see or the local interest. Okay. So, you know, kind of economic development, what residents want and need and, and kind of housing all the people that want to live here and protecting the environment end up being sort of bumpers that you have to kind of navigate as you're coming up with decisions for land use in Muskoka. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. And I think when you see development happening too, um, rightly or wrongly, sometimes you'll get public involvement because that's the nature of it in in Ontario is that it's a public process. Um, The challenge for the planner is a lot of people will come out if they're against the development, but sometimes they're against the development under the facade or there's like a mask of like, well, we're here to protect the environment. Um, When really it's it's just an anti- development kind of thing. And I think one of the challenges for the development industry in general is to change that perception and say, not all development's bad. How can we develop and do it in, in a positive way? Like development should be exciting. We're, you know, we're providing, you know, potentially housing units or opportunities for businesses and strengthening our community. And those, that's the potential when we get new development. Um, but it it does face a lot of opposition and unfortunately it's part of that is you know every time you develop even it's when it's in a urban area an older area there's always an environmental lens so planners are tasked with sort of sorting through that and a lot of it can be resolved through professional studies like an environmental report or um, some kind of professional study that shows that there's minimal impact or no impact or something like that to back up the planner's opinion, but it is very challenging and, and it's so emotional. Um, you know, when, when someone develops next to your home, it's an emotional thing. And as a planner, we have to have this, this, uh, neutral judgment and planning opinion. And it it can be really challenging. Are there ways to engage meaningfully with development as a public citizen who, you know, is part of the process in Ontario? Uh, I think the province has tried to do that a little bit. Like there's a lot of mandatory requirements now for public consultation beyond just the public meeting. But I think it really comes down to the developer saying, this is what we want to build. Um, Like in the past, if you wanted to build, let's say you wanted to do like a 12 unit apartment building near downtown, and you know, you just submit a zoning amendment, it's all textual, that kind of thing. But I think today there's more of an emphasis on like, okay, what does it look like? What's the impacts? Whereas, you know, in larger municipalities, they look at shadow analysis, for example, Um, you know, views, vistas, uh, impact on municipal servicing. Like there's a lot to it. Um, There's a lot to unpack. Um, So I, I think what it comes down to is the developer being, investing in the vision and communicating that vision to the public. And that goes a long way. We find that when there is that pre-consultation or like uh, if there's like a public open house, we find that the public's much more receptive than if it's just the textual abstract concept in the community because people's minds automatically go to what's the worst impact here? We're going to have a 
12 unit building next to us with balconies and people looking into our backyards and traffic issues and children are going to get run over and like i'm being a little bit facetious but these are not unusual things for people to say when they're opposed to development because they're really looking at the worst case scenario so i think it's really on the development industry to showcase what they're actually doing to engage with uh, community members who might who might kind of without really thinking about it only only be thinking about this in terms as you said of kind of emotionally their attachment to what is and what they can see and and fear of what they haven't yet been able to imagine for sure yeah so what are the opportunities that you see in muskoka i mean you've talked through some of these some of these pieces and you mm -hmm. talked about bill 23 and an increased kind of flexibility there but where do you see opportunity and optimism here in Muskoka? Uh, I see a few things. Like when you walk around older neighborhoods, they're typically, you know, larger size lots. Um, they're very walkable. They're well-connected. And this sets the foundation for opportunities for, um, you know, whether that's incremental apartments or infill or redevelopment. Um, we've seen a lot of downtown uh, infill in Huntsville specifically. Um, Bracebridge as well. There's been a lot of density around the downtown. I, I think Gravenhurst has the most opportunity given the number of vacant lots and how little density there is around the core. And given the strategic like location of downtown in Gravenhurst, um, like it's very walkable to Gull Lake, it's walkable to the wharf. That's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and there's kind of a trend in larger city centers towards revitalizing, revitalizing downtowns and encouraging infill development and that kind of thing. And I think it's just a matter of time before uh, we see more downtown development in Muskoka and especially in, in Gravenhurst. Um, I think a lot of people inherently think of development as bad, like we said earlier, but development's going to happen. And I think it's up to you know the local municipality to ensure that it happens in the right place and it's well-designed. Um, I would say in like in Perry Sound where I work, we're seeing a lot of infill right now as well. Um, and then when you get these infill projects, you're making wide use, wise use rather of infrastructure that already exists. You're strengthening neighborhoods. Um, you're providing opportunities for investment and housing. Uh, we have some large uh, developments in the Bay right now that um, they're actually rehabilitating the land. So traditionally there were these large oil um, storage tanks and the land's contaminated, but there's opportunity there for developers. And um, one developer in particular has spent somewhere in the range of like $10 million rehabilitating the land in order to prep it for large development. And it, it's just great to see because otherwise that land's just sitting there, it's contaminated, it's continuing to, you know, leach into the bay, which is never a good thing. Um, and, you know, they're proposing additional units and some, like there's a restaurant, there's a hotel, and there's there's also a continuation of our uh, trail system as well that would go along with that development. So I, I think in that case, the developer did a really great job of showcasing what the development was and how it could, you know, contribute to the community. And given that the lands were so contaminated and there's issues there, um, the community has been mostly supportive of that development, despite it being such a major change to, to the Bay. How far in the future do you have to look as a planner to to make the best use of existing infrastructure and and think about what the future of this community could be if shaped kind of prudently through planning? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think there is any right answer. 
um, legislatively, we have official plans that are supposed to be 20 year time horizons. Um, I think that's a useful time horizon because it provides, you know, a look into the future, but it's not so far into the future that it's like throwing darts at a, <laughs> at a board, right? Like it's flying cars. Yeah. <laughs> now our, the other piece to that is the province does require, um, regular review of plans and regular review of zoning bylaws. So I guess that's one answer. Um, the, the other thing that we think about as planners is you know, once you develop a piece of land, it's really hard to undevelop it. It's, it's not permanent, but um, you've changed it forever. So I, I think uh, any planner worth their salt is going to think about what's the best use for this property and how can we ensure that it's, you know, done properly and, you know, it, it's an effective use of a non-renewable resource, which is land in a community. So, I love that. Okay, let's end with something that's giving you hope right now. And it doesn't have to be about housing and it can be a little tiny thing or it can be a great big thing. Um, well, I'm definitely in uh, planning and development mode, but um, so probably a little bit of slant there, but I think people today are generally becoming more cognizant of how they live day to day. And by that, I just mean people are being more purposeful with their time and resources. Uh, people are more aware of their environmental footprints, um, and some of the larger challenges we face globally. And I, I think a lot of these issues can be dealt with at a local level by, you know, in part by, you know, building more compact communities, having mobility options, protecting natural areas. Um, I recently got into um, this author named Chuck Mahone, Charles Mahone, and he has a he started a movement called Strong Towns, and they look at development throughout North America, with a primarily with a lens that challenges what we call like post-war development, and they take the perspective, uh, they take many perspectives, but the most fascinating one for me is financial sustainability, and return on investment for municipalities. And sorry, this is probably a longer answer than you wanted, but I love it. Keep going. When you look at the return to municipality from tax dollars of a mixed use traditional main street versus like, a, I don't know, like a big box store, single use, low density subdivision, um, it's pretty astounding. Um, these traditional developments are usually like older. Sometimes they're run down. But when you do like a per acre analysis of that development versus a big box store, it's huge and these older areas are really the financial engine that keeps municipalities economically viable which is totally counter to a lot of people's perception that newer development is inherently better um, and i think we've always looked at the social benefits abstractly like from a planning perspective um, of small scale fine-grained traditional downtowns we know that those create really tight social connections as opposed to sitting in your car on the way to work and you know, that kind of thing. But I think once we attach a dollar amount to different styles of development, it becomes more relatable to more people and paints sort of a more fulsome picture of the impact of how that type of development can have on a community and then provide clues as to how we should develop um, or ways that, you know, communities would invest uh, their, you know, quite frankly, um, uh, tight, tax dollars so we don't have an, an endless amount of money here but how can we get the best bang for our tax dollar and I, I think you know strong towns has a lot of really interesting ideas and 
um, I just thought I'd throw that out there and make a plug for Charles Mahone because it's absolutely phenomenal some of the stuff that they're doing and they really push for a local small scale incremental development uh, as opposed to you know huge large redevelopment projects that you know can have a lot of negatives um, despite the intent um, we can get a lot or, or more out of small incremental developments as well. So we'll, I'll get the information for that from you and we'll link to it sure. in the show notes. Cause I think that, uh, I think that sounds fascinating. I actually just want to now read about it too. So, <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. This has been a fantastic conversation. I hope to have you back. Um, but I appreciate that you today and, and explained things to me that I did not previously understand. So <laughs> no, that's great. really appreciate the invite and hopefully we'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of At Home in Muskoka, a podcast by the Muskoka Community Land Trust, a nonprofit dedicated to place-based, sustainable solutions to local needs, including housing, food security, social enterprise, and community spaces. Visit muskokaclt.org to learn more, donate, and to get involved.